Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. This week, we present an interview originally recorded for the KCBS podcast series, 10 Questions with Stan and Susan. I'm Stan Bunger with Susan Lee Taylor. Consider this. Roughly 15 years ago, Facebook was only an idea. Today, the numbers would indicate three of every 10 humans on this planet use Facebook at some time during a given month. But whatever the early hope for Facebook might have been, there's a new reality today, and it's not all rosy. Our guest is someone who's had a personal epiphany regarding Facebook. Roger McNamee is a longtime Silicon Valley venture capitalist who actually served as an informal advisor to Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg at one point. Now he's a founding advisor at the Center for Humane Technology, which he describes as dedicated to helping consumers deal with the dark side of technology. Roger, you've written a book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And as Stan mentioned, you used to be a mentor of sorts to Mark Zuckerberg. So why did you change your mind? What changed? So, Susan, I spent 34 years being a technology optimist. I was involved with everything from the later days of the space program to the beginning of personal computers, the Internet, and then obviously social media. I met Mark when he was 22 and Facebook was only two years old. And I was lucky because I met him on a day when he had a problem. I was able to help him deal with it. And then for three years thereafter, I got to be an insider at that company helped him deal with a bunch of issues, including bringing in Sheryl Sandberg as, as his partner. And you couldn't have found a greater true believer in Facebook than myself. In 2016, though, I started to see things going on that didn't make sense. And a little bit like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, Alfred Hitchcock's movie, I saw something I didn't understand. I pulled on a thread to try to understand it. And what I saw was that bad people were using Facebook's advertising tools to harm innocent people. And over the course of 2016, I saw a whole series of things, several of them affecting civil rights. You know, I saw the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom and issues in the U.S. election. And I reached out to Mark and to Sheryl Sandberg in late October of 2016, nine days before the election, to let them know that I was worried that there was a systemic problem with the business model and the algorithms and that they need to get on top of it. And the response to that was essentially crickets. Well, not quite. I, they Actually, they couldn't have been more polite. And, you know, they, they reacted in a way that I think was predictable. Because, remember, the company had been so successful, and it's not like people had not been critical before, but the critics had generally been wrong. So they'd gotten comfortable with this notion that if there was criticism, they could ignore it because the critics were always wrong. But what happened was they were polite, They listened. They handed me off to one of their senior guys, and I spent three months trying to persuade him that this was an issue of trust that would undermine all of Facebook's business if they didn't get on top of it. And that even though the law said they weren't responsible for what third parties do on the platform, that the users would never forgive them if it turned out that they were causing harm, which sadly is precisely what's going on. I mean, the most recent numbers from 
from Nielsen suggests that usage is down something like 20% over the past year because people really are, they are appropriately concerned and skeptical in ways that we weren't in the past. You write that part of what's led us to this point is Mark Zuckerberg's own personality, his idealism, and you say a lack of empathy. How has that played into what we have now? Well, so Mark really is an idealist. And, you know, you have to understand, I liked him so much, and I still think he's a great, great, great um, executive and visionary. But he believes so firmly in this notion that connecting everyone on Earth is the most important thing a human being can do, that he believes it justifies any action necessary to make it happen. And so when things go wrong, they... uh, the company tends to view all the damage as just the cost of doing this really important mission. And so they've lost touch with the fact that the people who use the product are human beings who are entitled to self-determination, to controlling their own lives. And it's not just Facebook now. What I discovered as I went through this was that it's really pervasive on all of the data-intensive Internet platforms. So this is Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, it's Google, YouTube, you know, to a lesser extent, Twitter and Snapchat. And there are other companies in the data economy, like the people who correct, who uh, process credit cards, the cellular companies who collect all the data from your uh, location. And there's this whole commerce that's developed. And thanks to AI, artificial intelligence, it's now possible for these companies to construct really detailed and highly invasive portraits of people, not just the ones on the platforms, but literally everyone. And what's going on now is they're using that to essentially extract value, treating the people who use their platforms like a, a source of energy as opposed to you know, the people that they really are. So this goes in a couple of different directions, maybe more than that, but let's, let's see if we can split it apart. Number one is what you just talked about, the fact that the users of these platforms become the source of of raw data, there's even talk in some quarters of saying, well, let's let's get them paid a dividend for what they've given up. But what is more troubling, it seems, in reading through your book and your writings over the last couple of years, is this notion of, of, of essentially changing reality. You write at one point yeah. in the book, it has transfor- Facebook has transformed the way people see the world by enabling more than 2 billion users to have their own reality. But it's not even quite their own reality. It's a reality that's shaped by this unseen force called the algorithm. Yeah, and so here's what the problem is. These companies all depend on advertising for their revenue. And in order for the advertising to be valuable, you have to come back to the sites every day, hopefully more than once, and then you have to spend a lot of time there. So they play on the basic wiring of the human psyche. And so the first thing they do is we all have a need for rewards. We respond to rewards. And so they use the same techniques a slot machine would do, which is that they... They give you things at unexpected times that get you to build a habit. So they give you notifications that say, hey, somebody has just tagged you in a photograph or whatever. Or that you have like buttons and you want to go and see whether people have liked you know, what you posted or have they shared it. And those things create habits that in some people become addictions. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't have been more addicted to these products. I mean, the, the question I ask people is, first thing in the morning, when do you check your phone? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because right? it, it's going to be really early. And so, you know, that's one problem. And then when they get you on there, they got to get you to be engaged and to share a lot of stuff. And it turns out the best way to do that 
is to appeal to what is known as the lizard brain, the low-level emotions that protect us from danger, so fear and outrage. And what happens is if, if you read something that makes you either fearful or angry, you're going to share it because having other people share your fear and anger actually calms you down. It makes you feel protected. It's a tribal thing. And it's really good for the business of these platforms. And that explains why disinformation and conspiracy theories are so much more powerful than fact. That, you know, MIT did a study that says that, that disinformation spreads 70% further and six times faster than facts. And, you know, you think to yourself, well, that's got to be the bots. And it turns out it's not. Bots are neutral. That's the humans doing that. And that's what's so scary about all this is that it's, you know, these guys are really smart and they believe that they're exceptional and they believe that 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 entitles them to do things their way. And here's where the trick comes in. They've achieved a major business success and a lot of economic power because they really are smart people. With that, because of the nature of their products, they've come to dominate the public square in every country in which they operate which means they have huge political power. Their algorithms, their code, influence our lives today much more than the law does because we're a law-abiding citizen. And they've used that political power in ways that have enormous influence, and sometimes not even consciously, simply because their tools enable people to suppress votes or to change the political discussion in ways that we're not initially conscious of. And that political power brings with it huge responsibility. And at least for the two years that I've been working on this, the companies have resisted any accountability or any uh, influence over it. So they're not elected, they're not accountable, but they're immensely powerful. Well, and along those same lines, you talked about the fact that when it comes to downstream consequences, it's not really a thing at Facebook. How is it that we have a company this big with no consideration for consequences? Well, I, I actually think that this is a pervasive issue in our economy, that we've, we've gone through a long period of time where we really were benefiting from letting corporations grow as rapidly as possible. And, you know, for the first 10 or 20 years after we adopted that philosophy, it worked pretty well for everybody. But we've gotten in this thing where we've forgotten that shareholders – are not the only constituency that corporations should pay attention to. They should pay attention to employees. They should pay attention to the communities where the employees live. They should be very careful with suppliers, and they should obviously be attentive to uh, you know, their customers and all of the communities around them. And that has been forgotten nationwide. And in some industries, that's not dangerous at all. But in this particular one, where it really touches so many people... It touches so many people that it doesn't even need to have you be a user to affect your life. We really need them to be much more responsible, particularly now, because there's a new generation of technology coming to the market. Actually, two of them. You have smart devices, the kind that use Alexa or Google Home as a voice interface, and you've got artificial intelligence. And these are products that have a profound impact on life, and where it's really important that the vendors who sell them prepare for the failure modes that are almost certain to arise to protect users from 
the downside. And as far as I can tell, they've taken no steps to do that and are still pretending like these are little products where you can ship it the day it works and then let the people who use the product sort out all the bugs and failures. And that just doesn't work at this scale. But, Roger, if Ford Motor puts a car out that kills people, if United Airlines is found to have terrible maintenance and people are harmed, if Kraft Foods puts boxes of macaroni and cheese out that make kids sick, they're going to pay. Why does tech get a pass? So it's really simple. They have put into their terms of service that you cannot sue them. And the problem is that the terms of service are buried where nobody sees them. They are immensely long. would take hours to read, so nobody does. They get changed, and you're not alerted that they're being changed. But this, this rule that any complaint must be solved through arbitration, not in courts, has protected them from a financial consequence to failure. And my belief is that in the 2020 election, we need to recognize that the failure of technology companies to act responsibly is really an issue that applies to everyone. It's not political. It's not right versus left. It's really right versus wrong. And in that context, we need to ask questions we haven't asked before, which is why are they able to get away with this? Why can't state attorneys general sue them for these harms? Why can't the users themselves take legal action to recover damages. I think those are actually really important changes because they would alter the incentives. They would give the companies a reason to be more careful. And I think while we're at it, we want to look at behaviors that used to be harmless that are now dangerous. For example, why are credit card processing companies and banks allowed to sell your personal financial information? That, that can be really, really invasive and very dangerous. Why are cellular companies allowed to sell your location data? Why is anybody allowed to collect and sell data about minors, about children? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, you can have different points of view on this, but we need to have those debates. And I think those need to be part of the 2020 election cycle. And those are issues that, that Congress and the states should be taking up as soon as possible you know, to have those debates, air them. Give the companies a chance to state their case, why that's legitimate. But give the people who think those issues are um, need to be changed an opportunity to make that case and then let the people decide. Well, when it comes to the average Facebook user, isn't part of the problem that we may be vaguely aware that there's a problem, but we're not really clear how it affects us personally. So how do we educate people? Well, Susan, this is the really good news. You know, I started working on this more than two years ago and with advocacy just less than two years ago. And when we first started out, there was nobody to talk to. Nobody understood the issues, and for really good reasons. They're really confusing. I mean, there are problems here that affect the mental health of children and adults. There are things that affect democracy. There are things that affect privacy, and there are things that affect innovation and competition. So there's a lot going on. So it's understandable people wouldn't know. But I've been out on a book tour, and every night, every room is full to the brim, usually with standing room only. Hundreds and hundreds of people coming out every night. And there are people just, every imaginable kind of person is coming out. And it's parents who have little kids. It's parents who have teenagers. It's, you know, people who work in the tech industry. It's people who work in the media industry. It's people who work somewhere else. It's, it's grandparents. It's, and they're all out for one reason. They know there's something wrong. And they want to know, how does this affect me, and is there anything I can do about it? 
So when I wrote the book, the goal of the book was not to tell you the history of what happened here, but rather to help you understand that this is still unfolding. But I can give you the tools so that when you see a new piece of news, you understand why it matters to you. And then I help everybody understand what they can do about it. And all I can tell you is I'm incredibly optimistic because we, the human beings formerly known as users, we have a lot more power than we realize. Even though we're addicted, and trust me, I used to carry seven mobile devices on my belt. I looked like Batman. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't just a nerd. I was a dork, okay? And so everybody would look at me and go, Roger, your whole life is being mediated by technology. You can't even sit down at dinner and have a conversation without checking your phone. And all of that was true. And I've made changes to try to improve myself. I'm still addicted, but I'm better than I was. And, and the thing is, we can each make changes to make our life less visible and um, less manipulated. You know, don't let politics get you emotional on these places. Don't, don't believe the medical stuff you see online. Talk to real experts, you know. Don't let your health be a, a function of something you look up on Google. I mean, that's insane. Kids are coming home from school and saying to their parents, you know, I don't believe Pearl Harbor happened because I saw some video on YouTube. It's like, I'm sorry. But that's nuts. And, you know, so that's one thing. The other thing is we're all voters. And in the Bay Area, you know, our members of Congress are amazing on this issue. You know, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Jackie Spear or Anna Eshoo or Zoe Lofgren or Ro Khanna um, or Eric Swalwell or, um, you know, uh, Mark Desaunier or, or Barbara Lee, everybody understands the issue, which is really brave, right? Because these companies are in our community. Our senators, not so much. Our senators so far have been uh, not really engaged on the topic, and we have to make them engaged. But the state of California has already passed a really a groundbreaking privacy law, and Governor Newsom has proposed this dividend for our, our stuff there. But, you know, I really think the dividend's not enough. I mean, all these are good steps, but we have to change the behavior because Paying me for my data doesn't pay you for the damage done to you from the data they collect from me. You know what I mean? Yeah. What we really need to do is to stop them collecting the data in the first place. Well, let me roll back a bit, Roger. You described yourself as a, as a technology optimist. Aren't we all, right? We've been living through this remarkable phase for the last 40 or 50 years. It went into warp drive with the arrival of the Internet. It went into whatever is faster than warp drive with the arrival of mobile devices. And all we could all see from it is how it made our lives better, because it did in manifold ways. No, that's right. That's why I was an optimist, right? <laughs> of course. Right. So how do we shift gears? You're obviously in the middle of that process personally, and avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater or becoming Luddites. Stan, I love that question. So when we, the, the technology industry we know and love from Silicon Valley was one that empowered us. Steve Jobs used to talk about computers as bicycles for the mind, right? That they, they, they basically let us to go faster and better than we can go on our own. And what's happened here is that, that when we got to the point where there were no more limits or constraints on you know, processing power or memory or storage or bandwidth, suddenly you could cover the whole world. And when you had these global products, you had to approach them differently. Uh, you really need to prepare for the fact that that whole populations could be harmed. 
and the industry needed to grow up, and it didn't do that. So my recommendation is that we resolve that the next big thing is a return to bicycles for the mind, that we really focus on making sure that artificial intelligence is actually the technology penicillin of the 21st century, that we commit to eliminating implicit bias, right? It's, it, there's no excuse for facial recognition that doesn't recognize women or doesn't recognize people of color. There's no excuse for AI-based resume applications that carry over the human bias based on gender or based on race. There's no excuse for mortgage application products that have redlining and other kinds of bias against religion or race. I mean, that shows a lack of care and a lack of maturity, and we're better than that. I believe that we can solve this problem with innovation. We can solve these problems with new industries, but it needs a different operating philosophy. You can't just have more code and more AI in Google or Facebook. That that's the problem. You need different business models. You need different architectures. And in order to do that, we're going to need to use antitrust law to create space for a new industry to start. Because right now, these guys, they have so much intellectual property. They have so much data. And they have so much influence that they can stop startups from getting past the seed stage. And I see this every single day. And we have to use antitrust to create space. We might even want to create government incentives. I mean, if we give an incentive for finding energy, if we give incentives for being a farmer, why wouldn't we give incentives for a better social media environment, better Internet technology? I think that those are, those are debates we should have. And 2020, we've got a presidential election cycle coming up. We've got the entire Congress getting reelected. Let's have those debates right now. Okay, well, let's talk about that issue because politics has been part of our discussion this morning. The 2020 election, are we ready for it as far as keeping information safe and the Internet's role in it? So, you know, I love talking to you guys because you were on all the issues that I spend my whole time on, Susan. <laughs> See, so that preparation paid off, Susan. I, yeah, I, I take great comfort from 2018. So in 2018, there was more disinformation out than there was in 2016, and I think by quite a lot. But a really interesting thing happened. In 2016, the real, you know, the evil genius of 2016 was the recognition by Stephen Bannon that you could use Facebook and Instagram to suppress the votes of key constituencies because you could appeal to people's fears, to the things that bothered, things that had nothing to do with the election, and use those things to convince them that the, that the political system was broken and that they shouldn't vote. The people they targeted were suburban white women, people of color, and younger voters who were really idealistic. And it really worked. But in 2018, those three groups turned out at much, much higher levels than they did in 2016. And I think we should take some comfort in that because, you know, we're learning, we're evolving, we're getting better. But there are so many new techniques. There was a report this week that disinformation campaigns against a broad range of Democratic candidates have already started. <laughs> we have to worry about synthetic audio and video, what are known as deep fakes, where, you know, if you get 20 minutes of audio about anybody, you can synthesize something that sounds like a completely authentic speech. And if you have enough video, and you would for any political candidate, you can create synthetic videos that would appear to be totally compromising that are fabricated. And we have to be on our guard. We have to recognize that 
that there are people out there who are trying to undermine democracy using technology, and that these platforms are typically the host for those things. It's not the platform people are doing this, but they, the way these things are designed, and this philosophy that the platforms have no responsibility, that the responsible is entirely on the people who use them, to police them, that doesn't work anymore. I mean, that's that's we can see that that's a flaw, and we just we can't allow them to continue to operate that way. And like I said, I don't think it's because they're bad people. I think it's because they got used to being right for so long that they can no longer necessarily see what's going on. I mean, Mark just yesterday was out there saying Mark Zuckerberg was saying that you know they're going to crowdsource um, they're going to crowdsource fact checking. I mean, I'm sorry, dude. We know for a fact that doesn't work. I mean, that's complete nonsense. I mean, yeah, we, you know, you can't solve problems using the same techniques that create them in the first place. Well, okay, so unfortunately, we're at the 10th question, which, uh, you know, is our darn ground rule, but we're stuck with it. And that is exactly the, at the, the heart of this, isn't it? If you built a monster, uh, and I'll put that in quotes, or some may want to remove them, that is based on essentially the lack of human intervention the humans built this thing they turned it loose how then can you fix it with the machine itself or can you throw enough human hands and eyeballs at it to solve the problem it, it feels like there really isn't an answer for this thing at the scale it's reached well stan the problem is that you have to change the business model i think that there are two ways to do that one is you create very significant legal liability for failures and, you know, the way it would be anywhere else in the economy, and that that would be one stimulus. The other is that you can require changes in the business model by prohibiting things like the sale of private financial data or the trading of it, or even, say, micro-targeting in an election thing, which would create First Amendment issues. But nonetheless, I think we have to look at things like that because it is, um, you know, these things matter more. You know, the First Amendment can't be, in my opinion, marshaled as a tool for destroying democracy, right? I mean, the point of the First Amendment is to encourage it, not to destroy democracy. I think it's very hard to see these guys um, fixing their business models. That's why I want to encourage competition, alternative things, and I want to encourage people to support products that have, uh, you know, privacy, democracy, public health, and innovation in mind. And I think there are companies standing up to do that. I think Apple's been very brave around privacy. I think Salesforce has been really good on the public health issues. I think IBM's trying super hard to make sure that its its artificial intelligence products are free of uh, not only bias, but that you can verify it. So again, I'm very positive. We have an election coming up. We have a voice. We can use it. And you can go into your schools and do the right thing for the kids and just say, look, Except for special needs kids, let's get the computers out of the classroom. Let's help kids learn how to focus by staying in touch with the teacher and their classmates. You know, we can have screens at home. We can have them in other places. They don't need to be there. Let's protect little kids. Keep them off of YouTube kids where the content gets them overhyped and overenergized. Protect teenagers from bullying on Instagram. These are things that as parents, you know, it's hard but, but we can, if we team up and we don't recognize that we're not alone, that everybody has this problem, we can do this together. And uh, I'm really confident that we can make progress. I've written the book to help people find a way to do that. And, you know, 
I think together we're going to make this work, and you guys are part of the solution. I want to thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. This interview with guest Roger McNamee was originally recorded for the KCBS podcast series, 10 Questions with Stan and Susan. You can listen to new and archived episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Radio.com, and KCBSRadio.com. If you listen through iTunes, we ask you to please rate and review the podcast. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.